Well, hello and welcome to Inexos Access All Areas. My name is B, and I will be co-hosting this series of podcasts with my Inexos nerd, Hayden Murdoch. We will be delving deep with you all to explore everything there is to know about this iconic band of brothers in excess, sharing music, tours, videos, albums, and oh, so much more. Well, hello and welcome to Inexcess Access All Areas, episode 151, the podcast that dives deep in all things great about our favourite band. Do it with patrons, do it with friends, and do it with my famous and very friendly friend, 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 B. I guess uh, we don't have a guest today, which is a bit weird, so it's, we're going to have to try and entertain everybody amongst ourselves today. Probably like we did for the first 50 episodes virtually, didn't we? Um, but uh, how are you, B? How's your Inexcess week been? It's been good. It's good to see you again, mate. How amazing was Bruce? He was fantastic. I felt like I was robbed when he said, Murphy had said, kill it, when they're on the verge of releasing more songs from the album. Mm, because yeah. I didn't know about this album at the time. That we we're talking about Max Q here. What was interesting overall with Bruce is that, you know, it seems like, you know, Ollie's, Ollie Olsen's music, it's a bit of a going concern. And obviously that being the case, some of the stuff for Michael and what he's done is a going concern. And uh, getting some dates now about the uh, re-release of Rooms for the Memory and uh, some of the information there was great. And uh, some hints about Max Q getting a, maybe a, a remastering and uh, bonus tracks and dance versions uh, will make a lot of people around the world very, very happy because it's been a hard release to uh, download. You can't really download it. And uh, they found the master tapes. So very, very happy with those yeah, updates. Yeah, no, it's great that you've got those master tapes. Why don't you just ask me, what? how's my NXS week? I think I have, but I'm going to ask you. I'm going to ask you again, though. How's your NXS week been? Well, Hayden, <laughs> just five minutes ago before we came on air, I released a poll onto our website. And the poll is, which track of Max Q would you like to see become a single? So I'm going to go on there right now because we've already had lots of people. Okay, stats, here we go with um, the um, which track of Max Q would you like to see become a single so far? Oot Van Rot is in the lead with Monday Night by Satellite, followed by Concrete, Ghost of the Year, and Tight. Okay, all right. Well, that's interesting. These, these are the uh, the non singles so far. Is that right? Absolutely. Only non singles yeah. are available to um, enter on there. Yeah. yeah. Did you say did, did you say Monday Night yes. by Satellite or not? Is, is... See, that was a single here, but you're doing it more globally, exactly, are you? Exactly, Hayden. Yeah. Right. Okay. Good. 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 Did I save you from the potential <laughs> wrong poly thing there? I did. There? And there was a reason I put it on. I was like, yes, that's the reason. Yeah. Thank you. Mm. And lobby for a retrospective ARIA award for that one for Ollie. Oh, that's the that's, – yes. Where is that? Yes. So Michael's has gone <laughs> well, missing. Michael's um, gold award went missing for – Right. Yeah, and Ollie didn't even get one. Well, he thinks some, some execs got it or whatever there, but mm. – uh, Shame on you if you're listening. Yeah. Shame on you. Anything else come across your desk this week in the in excess world before uh, I share some updates? I'm just going to slip in here that there's going to be a news flash right at the very end, so make sure you listen in right at the end. Well, I could list out how many tracks are going to be released on this album if you like. No, no, if you're allowed to and you can, please. This, this is for Rooms for the Memory release, yes. is that right? Rooms for the Memory release, we were given a press release and we've released this now with the photo of the cover so if you go onto our socials you can see this rooms for the memory 2023 track listing number one rooms for the memory 2023 by adelita and that will be a single okay 
Number two, Rooms for the Memory in 1986 with Michael Hutchins, remixed in 2023. Number three, Rooms for the Memory 2023, Adelita, a full mix. Okay. That's two mixes of that one with Adelita. Number four, Win Lose by Kev Tempoli from Eskimo Joe. Number five, Win Lose by Ollie Olsen, Dogs in Space version. And I must say, all of these have been reproduced by um, Nick Launay and he's done an amazing job with Michael and Ollie's amazing. And number six, Runes for the Memory Again, 2023 by Adelita. And it's the Kraus mix, which I think he is the guy that's actually produced, managed them in the Sing Sing studios was where it's all done. Yeah. Okay. And then you've got Adelita, his lead vocals and guitar. Mick Harvey's okay. on lead guitar, bass, and backing vocals. Andrew Duffield yep. is on keyboards and programming. Matt yep. Watson on drums and Muddy Butler. Do you remember who Muddy Butler is? The daughter of Bruce. That's right. Backup vocals. Backing up. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There you go. Excellent. Excellent. Mm. It's great when new things come out. I, uh, I'm probably a bit old school. Used to uh, have my little CD collection at home, and I had inbuilt shelves put up B at my house. When I put all of these things up, now I've moved property since then. But uh, always just I love getting a new tactile CD and slipping it in and putting it there, and going, "That's something new," and playing it for a few weeks around my car, and and then allocating it away and going, "Okay, next. When's the next one coming?" Yeah, you know? yeah. And I must confirm the dates. Sorry, Hayden. Adelita okay, single is coming out on June the sixteenth. Yeah. Which is next Friday, okay? Yeah, that's available for international listeners too, isn't it, to download that? Is that right? Yes, these are going to be the digitals, yes. And then the EP, which has got all of the songs and the physical, yeah. will be available on July the 14th. We might try and do for our really ardent collectors who like to have the CDs, mm-hmm. we might buy up a few here and then be able to post them out to our patrons uh, rather than having uh, our pages have to import them and go through all those taxes. Mm, what do you think? Mm, yeah. Well, let's try and do yeah. that. Yeah, that would be really yeah. good, wouldn't it? Maybe we could buy like a 1,000. We could get it into the charts. <laughs> God, we've got about 10 books in the – no, I'm joking. Okay. <laughs> no, but, it, no. It, you know, the, there will be the limited edition colour vinyl as well, yep. uh, as well as the black vinyl, as well as the CD. So, yeah, we'll be getting a few of those. And I've been told by Bruce, I can't confirm it yet, yet but he said that he's going to try and get um, Ollie's signature and some of the band on there as well to hmm. sign it hopefully we can make more money from this and we'll put it on eBay and get those auctioned off all for Ollie all for Ollie yes well what I'm being good research there and that's great to be able to bring uh, you know information that probably hasn't even been released to the greater sort of uh, media world yet we've sort of first off the press with it and thanks for Bruce for sharing and allowing us to release that information What's happening in my next this week? I've done a little bit of research. Um, there's a cool little article came out today, and I'm probably jumping ahead of our news, but uh, Giles Martin, who's one of the executive directors behind the scenes, uh, helping in excess's back catalogue and a lot of their work, has uh, put a, a great little article out that got released about two days ago. I'll elaborate that a bit later on. But, yeah, there's uh, definitely a push from uh, people across the industry now recognising in excess not being inducted in the Hall of Fame. So, uh, that came across my desk. Uh, and also, too, uh, we are looking forward to having uh, that book, uh, well, the book from In Excess get released from uh, the official uh, ban and their website. 
that does involve a lot of your uh, patron submissions about tours and concerts you went to and your personal anecdotes. So as as we've said previously, uh, we will be interviewing some guests for that, hopefully, uh, and being able to coexist with the NXS website and give you a little forum to have your words uh, in audio perpetuity be. Perpetuity. Ooh, I like that. That's a good word, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, I like that. Um, <laughs> any word on a date of release on that, Hayden, from uh, the, the, the gods above? I have seen it. I have I have sent an email out just sussing out when we are getting on a call yet to get it email back, but uh, I will update you when I know more about it. But so the thing um, about the book, I mean, there's no update on when no, that's been. No, look, I, I think it's the second half of the year from what I've been sort of told. Okay. All right, but we're going to welcome our patrons aboard, and it's actually a, a word from our friendly sponsored patron, Nick Egan. This is Nick Egan, better known by you fans as the designer of the Kick X and Live Baby Live covers, as well as director of the Searching and Don't Lose Your Head videos. Just under two years ago, I was on vacation driving up the central coast of California with my family, and I was looking for something to listen to, and I came across a podcast which immediately aroused my attention. It had a quirky but professional style to it. It was conversational. There was a lot of humor. I was immediately taken by it and reached out to both Hayden and B and offered myself as an interviewee of which I did where I talked about the kit cover primarily and since then I've appeared on the show on a couple of occasions or a few occasions and um, I've seen it go from being a relatively localised but popular uh, podcast to becoming a global podcast so I also wanted to say to you fans out there if you're not patrons already please please sign up become patrons because both B and Hayden and do this as volunteers they both have jobs as well as this they put a lot of dedication into this podcast a lot of love and a lot of time and effort and even if you can't afford to become a patron try and contribute in some way because we need podcasts like this we need podcasts that come from the fans that are true to the fans and we don't want to sit here corporate band podcasts we want to hear real podcasts from real people anyway congratulations Hayden and B. I'll say hello to everybody outside, it's about 10,000 people at least. Hello. Well, hello to our honorary members, Tim Ferris, Nick Egan, Mark Opitz, Richard Simpkins, Cameron Adams, Mary Woods, Darren Jones, and Paul Jolie. Our patrons, Carmen, Laurie, Carrie-Anne, Danielle, Sarah Markham, Sarah Carrier, Dr. Jim, Katie, Lisa Mack, Anne-Marie, Susan P, Susan B, Foxy, Pedro, Mandy, Lisa, Yvonne, Amanda H, Amanda V, David, Tracy, Paul Buckley, Ella, Ryder, Tony, Erica, Abigail, Martin, Val, Jim, Kelly, Jackie, Sean, Sheila, Shannon, Helen, Brett, Suzanne, Laurel, Bard, Genevieve, Shelby, Manny, Lori, Jill, Laos, Heidi, Paula, Lisa, Angie, Nancy, Juliet, Scott, Anthea, Maria, Tracy, Vernon, Jamie, Diana, Stefan, Andrew, Georgie, Stephen, Keisha, Mark, Vern, Shane, Lachlan, Mandy, Rachel, Nick, Sula, Amy, Diana and Paula. 
and our special mentions are to Sue D, Joe Robbins, John A. Vink, Michael Spriggs, Glenn Davis, Paul Boozy, and Jay Finlayson. Welcome to the podcast. Now, big shout out to Nick. Nick uh, lives in the Hollywood Hills, and if you are on Facebook and follow Nick, you would notice that he's very, very funny and interesting with his Facebook posts. But he did post, uh, I think, some video footage and some late-night security cameras of a car that decided to go around the corner and then drive over another car, I think. And sometimes with those things, you know, when they sort of loop back, I thought it was like three or four cars did it in a row, but obviously it was a loop that was going back and forth. But uh, Nick lives a funny life and uh, only in the Hollywood Hills, eh? Well, did you not read a little bit further on? So, oh, Look, I didn't read further. If you got more to add to the mystery? <laughs> it's not his footage. Um, he heard the collision and the woman went and then someone said, I bet that person lived around the corner. Anyway, some investigation, they found the car 500 metres up the road and the lady who had thought she was driving one of those big trucks and had literally reversed yes. and gone back over it had put a claim into mm. her insurance company for damages for her car. Wow. Wow. So wow. she will Your have destiny. the police come around and she will be charged with <laughs> like leaving the scene and yeah. whatever. Yeah. Don't leave your car on a corner in LA. <laughs> no. I guess we have one foot in the past and one foot in the now, and we're going to go back and recognise, as we alluded to, I think, on the last week or two, about the 40th anniversary of the US Festival or the Ars Festival or the US Festival, however they pronounce it, um, that uh, we're celebrating. And this is a pivotal sort of thing for NSS because, obviously, in the last six months, Mark Opitz has gone back and remastered all of the audio of that concert with Michael and, uh, again, play that in my car every day for a few weeks there and uh, it felt like uh, being there at the concert uh, at a young Michael of 23 years of age uh, singing his rocks off to a very amped up crowd and 180,000 people and really pumped to sort of just dive deep on this and um, also too, I just want to give credit to you, you've done a lot of research behind the scenes. I think you've you've almost felt like you, you've travelled back in time, you've watched the gig and watched a whole bunch of stuff so what's the time for? Hey, this is Tim Farris. Big shout out to Hayden and B. Also want to say hello to all the listeners and NXS fans. Thanks for listening. I love you, Hayden and B. You're doing a great job. Keep it up. And now it's time for Topic of the Week. All right, B, we're going to talk about the US Festival today. Interestingly, through my research, B, I was unaware that they actually had two of these festivals, one in 1982 and one in 1983. It seems like we only really hear about the 983, which is pretty cool because that's the one that NXS were at. But uh, this was a, uh, a double set of concerts, B, that did first start in September of 82, which I'm sure you're aware of as well. Yeah, I thought that too, like you. I thought yeah. that this was the first one, but um, yeah. obviously this is the better one with NXS involved. That's right, that's right. So look... <laughs> 
as we like to do, give a bit of context and uh, background as to how all this came about. Uh, Steve Wozniak, who we all know through Apple and through the success of partnering up with uh, Steve Jobs, uh, I believe it was about 32, he was having some time off from Apple. And I think apparently, B, you may or may be aware, not be aware, but he had a sort of uh, plane accident and uh, about six months before setting up the festival. And he had a bit of a reality check and lost his sort of memory and a few different things and thought, oh, I'd like to do some big tech expo and music expo where they come together and maybe build a war between America and the Soviet Union. And it was a pretty sort of a tense period in our lives where um, there was a lot of sort of tension between the Soviets and, and the US. And uh, and that wasn't the real sort of springboard behind things, but it was a, a nice sort of uh, backdrop to things where I think he built some sort of bridge and some sort of techno thing where they could talk to the Soviets and things. But yeah, September 82, it sort of kicked off, I guess, with the, uh, the very first iteration of that particular concert. And uh, the interesting thing being when I did my research and probably you as well, is that it lost a truckload of money. Oh, <laughs> um, I know. <laughs> and the- there's a bit of a fallout, isn't there? So I'm sure we'll talk about that later, about the billing. <laughs> I reckon you know more about the fallout, but what I can mm. sort of say to people is that I think it uh, it sort of cost, uh, uh, well, it actually lost monies in the tune of about $12 million at the first event. Uh, and I think the prices back then, it's interesting, B, the, uh, they've got about 400,000 people going in over the three-day event, which is uh, pretty, pretty significant for a, uh, a new idea. And uh, I think the price for a three-day ticket was about $37.50, wow. uh, which I think inflationary-wise is worth about $110 now. Um, it's a pretty fair price. Yeah, they lost a lot of money. And then the first one in 82, and I think they lost a similar amount. But in the 1983 version, they got 670,000 people, nearly doubled. But they still lost, I think, around 12, 13 million on that one. So <laughs> good if you've got it, if you can burn it. But uh, yeah, it was uh, it wasn't a financial success. But sometimes in life, a lot of things aren't financially successful, but they are critically successful, as we've talked about in, in music, whereas something might not sell a lot of records, but artistically, it's uh, very successful. And maybe that's the case uh, with this event, the fact that we're talking about it 14, 41 years later. So I think as you pointed out to me, uh, B, I think uh, Steve had a bit of a mission statement. He felt like the 60s uh, came and went with a, a real regard. And then the 70s was a bit of a I think, as you said, B, it was a sort of a selfish era. Was that right? I've heard it said a few times that um, it was a, a goodbye to the me generation and this right. was going to be the us generation. Yes. Mm. Yes. And Hence it's probably the now. Name. And mm. probably now, us old, us old folkies now, we'd probably call it the me, me, me generation now, wouldn't we? <laughs> <laughs> you know? As I sit here, my two kids are fighting over the mobile phone. Oh, Steve, oh they? <laughs> and ironically, Steve created with, uh, with well, two Steve, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. Ironically, uh, it's the me, me, me generation now. So, um, but, uh, uh, tell me about uh, it. Yeah. Wait till they become teenagers. <laughs> the meal is yeah. turning 16 this weekend and it's oh all like, God. what? this is what I want. This is exactly yeah, what yeah. my God. Mm, can I set the scene? Yeah, can yeah. I set, set the, the scene, scene for me. Yep. I don't know the exact date. Do you have the exact date there? Well, yeah. I mean, it was uh, September 82, I believe, the uh, first festival was there, uh, which sort of happened. And then uh, I think uh, it was sort of at the end of May, uh, 83, around that Memorial Day long uh, okay. uh, weekend. So uh, that were the dates of the two gigs. It was a very hot, sticky day and they were in a dust bowl. And when you see the footage, it's very flat. Mm. And this is like, you know, like in the 80s and 
tense back then. Do you remember tense back then, Hayden? I do. Oh, my goodness. They were, they so were they... like saunas, weren't they? <laughs> well, no, <laughs> just the poles in themselves, you know. Yeah. You had to find the pieces. There was none of these little bit of string to hold them together. And mm. they were big, heavy things. So there's mm. these guys trying to hammer into this hard in hard ground and it's all hot and dusty and sticky. Um, and there's mm. a health warning straight away about, you know, um, mm. you've got to put on your, um, your sunscreen and there was showers everywhere for everyone to get wet and then to um, drink and drinking fountains and it was all about looking after each other and Mm. looking after the next person so um, yeah even before it started there was a this like temperature of hot and stickiness for Mm. everybody anyway well just for those who in the california or la area the the valley is always seemingly a hotter area. It's on the other side of the mountains in San Bernardino Valley, and it's always sort of that four to five degrees hotter when you go over the hills into sort of uh, sort of the uh, beach side of Orange County and things. It's always a little bit cooler there because of the breeze off the ocean. So um, exactly right. I think they uh, they sort of almost flattened out a big landmark area, about 500 acres, uh, acres in uh, Glen Helen Park in San Bernardino, and I think it was the Labor Day weekend of September in 82, the first one, and it was the, uh, uh, the memorial sort of... Uh, the long weekend in, in the May of 83 where they had the same venue, uh, I guess, uh, literally only probably about eight, nine months later, you know, to accommodate that amount of people. They got nearly 700,000, as I said, for the second concert. So it must have been something at the time, B, that was really quite successful for the fans who were going because if something's a bit of a blowout or a bust, you know, you wouldn't think of doing something as, as soon as eight, nine months later. Um, so, again, maybe commercially didn't sell uh, – sorry, commercially it sold a lot, but it didn't have a net return as they probably would have liked. But I don't think Steve Wozniak complained because he went on to have a good life. <laughs> well, he wanted a bit of touch of yeah. rock and roll as well, yeah. didn't he? Um, touch of rock and roll, but the bit that made me laugh, I mean, I know it was only the 80s, but um, they literally had a piece of string and they were holding a piece of string and they literally go, okay, go. And then the whole sort of crowd came through the barrier. Oh. There was no sort of like gates or anything. It was yes. a piece okay. of string. Yes, yes, yes. Nowadays we'd have two. Turnstiles and barcodes and yeah, and, and, and QR codes on our wrists and all sorts of stuff, <laughs> wouldn't we? You know, yeah, yeah, um, it's fun. And some of the aerial shots as well, they were like you know all in nice little patterns of where they mm. were all going to be. Now you look over Glastonbury and it's like every corner, everyone's mm. trying to get in. Well, I think there was a little bit of hesitation. If you actually think back to Woodstock in '69, I think it was, and then you've got the Monterey sort of festival, which was I think '67, '68, the pop festival, and then you had Ultimate which was where the Stones played in the early 70s. Well, I mean, 1970 there where the Hell, Hell's Angels took over and, and uh, the bouncer got murdered. There was about a 10, 12-year gap where big outdoor concert shop, things like this, were deemed a real risk to society and the public and things. So um, having that 12, 13-year gap between some of these prior major events probably was a, a good sort of um, – soothing period where I don't know the you know everything sort of remained dormant and then you know as they say everything old is new again you know Steve comes along has this idea I guess just to kick things off a little bit in terms of the band speed if you're going to start something like this thing off uh, we look back to say the 982 sort of uh, festival for, for context uh, they you know had a, a similar format to 83 but uh, just some of the acts like if I can read out for a moment September 3rd on the first Friday there they had Gang of Four which is uh, our friend Andy Gill uh, who went on to produce Michael's 
solo album, which is a nice touch. Uh, on that Friday, you could sense it was probably more of a sort of that punk uh, reggae thing where they had bands like Gang of Four, uh, The Ramones, The Beat, Boingo Boingo, B-52s, Talking Heads, and then the headline act probably to finish that night off with The Police, uh, which were huge at that particular era in 1982. The next day in 1983, it was probably more your singer-songwriter's Slash, um, you know, uh, Americana rock. You had Dave Edmonds, I guess is Welsh. You know, you probably remember that song, Girls Talk. Eddie Money, Santana, The Cars, The Kinks, Pat Benatar, and then Tom Petty and The Heartbreakers finishing it off, which is pretty cool. And then on the Sunday, you had The Grateful Dead, which a lot of people know about, Jerry and Jeff Walker, Jimmy Buffett, the Margarita song, uh, and the Coral Reef Band, Jackson Brown and Fleetwood Mac finishing it off. So if you looked at those particular artists around 1982 and you had a wish list, um, you'd be probably about 97% happy with all of those artists, wouldn't you? Yeah. You know, in terms of like, you know, big names, attracting Never fans. Never heard to of come Boingo along. Boingo until I heard this. Uh- <laughs> well, well, let me, let me give you a, okay. Well, Boingo Boingo, the uh, the main uh, guy behind that is the guy who wrote the theme uh, for The Simpsons. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. So he's married to Richard Fonda, the main singer songwriter. He's done a lot of musical stuff over the years, uh, a lot of uh, production. Uh, I think his name's Danny. Danny Elfman, that's his name. Yeah, he's been quite prolific in TV and, and movies uh, since the mid 80s. That's a, just a bit of the backdrop of the first one. Um, as you said, flipping to the next one, it was equally uh, pretty hot, but slightly cooler, I think, than it was in September. Like, if you think of the, the seasons of. Um, of weather in California, uh, September, right in the bloody peak of that summer. Whereas May, you're probably coming into June, July, where it starts to warm up. So thankfully, it was a little bit cooler in May. I think it was about 95 degrees Fahrenheit. <laughs> but you can imagine the air quality was pretty poor in LA, pretty smoggy. At that next gig, I guess attract uh, Van Halen and probably David Bowie is the two biggest artists. They paid the $1.5 million each to perform their sets on that particular 1983 uh, festival. So put that in perspective, that's probably times up by about 3.5. That was probably about $5 million for about an hour set. Not bad money, B. Yeah, and I do believe Van Halen got even more than that, actually. Right. Because... What happened was that they they got their lawyers involved and said, you said we were going to be the, the top billing right. and top paid <laughs> act of that, right. and we didn't. So they forked out another, I don't right. know, 400,000 or something. Right, so, okay. Yeah. Well, you know, I guess the way it's formatted over the uh, three the three nights, um, if we go into sort of 983, which is probably the real emphasis of this particular one, um, they decided to, to format the, the music under sort of supposed categories. So uh, on Saturday, May the 28th, they called it New Wave Day. Uh, so this one was sort of on a Saturday, Sunday, Monday set up. Our band from Australia, The Divinals, uh, headed up. Uh, Mark Opitz, uh, producer of their debut album and many other songs, was, uh, I guess, uh, intrinsic there and helped The Divinals get a spot on that tour uh, and that festival. Uh, following up another Mark Opitz act, we had uh, In Excess, our friends, <laughs> uh, with the second act. Uh, Wall of Voodoo, which uh, had some cool songs around that time. Boingo Boingo got another gig beat. They've come up again. The Beat or The English Beat. I wonder if it's the same band. I think they had a name change, but they've come up and played twice. Flock of Seagulls, B, band of the early 80s. The Stray Cats, Men at Work and The Clash uh, was the spearhead act to finish the night off on the Saturday. On the Sunday, they called it Heavy Metal Day. So Van Halen thought that they were spearheading, and they were. They spearheaded Sunday. They didn't spearhead Monday. So that may have been the contention of the organiser. However, if they got 400 grand more, well done to them. Quite right with the band playing as the opening act on the, on the Sunday. Uh, Motley Crue, Lock Up Your Daughters, uh, followed up. Ozzy Osbourne B, uh, Judas Priest, a little bit of British uh, stuff there. 
uh, Triumph, uh, the German band The Scorpions, Hello Wind of Change, uh, and Van Halen uh, spearheaded the uh, Sunday night uh, end of gig uh, act. They then played on the Monday, and we had the band Los Lobos, who probably four years later were very much well-known for the song La Bamba, uh, for the uh, La Bamba movie. Little Stevie and the Disciples of Soul. Now, that's Little Stevie from Bruce Springsteen's band. Uh, Quarter Flash, who were a bit of a two-hit wonder around that time. Berlin B, Take My Breath Away from the Top Gun soundtrack. We're on the Monday. Uh, Missing Persons, I don't remember them. U2, and we know them, The Pretenders. Uh, Joe Walsh, the main guitarist from the Eagles. Uh, Stevie Nicks. And then spearheading on the Monday night, they had David Bowie as the uh, last uh, performer. Now, did you know about a week later they kept the venue open? They had a country day. Did you know that? Oh, did they? Okay. Yeah. So they had it. They kept it open. They had uh, the Thrasher Brothers, Ricky Skaggs, Hank Williams Jr., uh, Emmylou Harris and the Hot Band, Alabama, uh, Waylon Jennings, Riders in the Sky, and Marijuana's favourite friend Willie Nelson. <laughs> uh, so there was a little bit of a country element there too that played about five days later. So, um, yeah, uh, again, some great acts, obviously uh, nearly sort of, uh, well, you know, 700,000 fans for the second setup proved to be, I guess, another success uh, that, again, is talked about and remembered and revered, if not for the fact that they lost a lot of money. The crowd this first day was not huge and not everyone was happy. Well, the problem is they won't let anybody carry food in and yet they won't let us out to get our own food. So there are people who come here bringing their own food and we can't bring it in to eat it. So it's like we don't have enough cash to buy food. And there's like 12 hours that we're going to be in the festival site. Now, Pete, do you want to know the price of some food and drinks back then? Ooh, uh, go, going along yeah. those things, okay? So I know, I think the first gig and the setup there, uh, to actually go in there, you pay $1.50 for a beer, which, uh, again, time is about 3.5 and you'll get the inflation. Uh, cheeseburgers were two seventy five. And ham and eggs were $4.50. So I don't know if that was on a plate or whatever. So, uh, but again, remember, 980, 283 prices. I saw a doco, and I think we mentioned this the other week, on the uh, uh, Netflix recently. They did a uh, 1999 doco on Woodstock Revisited 99. And they had shortages of water and toilets. It was just a horrible to, uh, you know, proceedings. But um, yeah, uh, I think when you go back to this particular time, the whole fan experience now, people are fussier now, aren't they, about the fan experience? Back then, you know, it's like whatever, you know, beer, water, you know, jumping up and down. It was probably uh, all about uh, the emotional sort of engagement rather than the fan experience, you know. I was just going to ask you, Hayden, have you ever been to a festival? That's a good question. I've been to many concerts. I've been to festival-type venues, but I don't think I've been to a festival that's gone two, three days before now. Because I went to Glastonbury when I was over there back in, oh, 92, something like that. Hmm. You know, it's it's pretty intense and scary at the same mm. time of the night time because there's things going on. You know, there was a shooting while I was in Glastonbury. Wow. Um, I remember toilets falling over with people in them, you know. The, mm. uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, and then there'll be just like people that look half dead on the floor because they'd had a good night out and stuff like yes. that. But yeah, you know, there was a lot of the seedy side to it as well. And I think mm. that's probably got uh, managed a little bit more now. Yeah. Well, you know, let's let, let's skip ahead and say, okay, this is 983. Now, mm. uh, you may have heard of in the early 90s, particularly around sort of the grunge slash alternative music scene, there was a festival called La Palooza, uh, which was uh, set up, I think, uh, by the guy from Addiction and uh, the lead singer from them. And from that sort of point of view, 
uh, that became quite a big festival that has remained pretty steady over 10, 20 years. And I think it may have uh, had years where it stopped and things. People in our, our listenership may be able to share that with us. But if we look at the inspiration behind these festivals and we look what's happening now, I mean, you look at something like Coachella, which right. is out in sort of the Californian desert. You know, you look at things like Burning Man, which is mm-hmm. maybe not a, a band-type festival, but it is that sort of fan experience out in the out primitive uh, areas of the desert. Uh, we look at what's happened, you know, I guess in the UK in the mid-90s with Nebworth and then through to Glastonbury and things. These type of festivals gave another sort of kickstart to the music industry to see what was possible. And I think in England, I mean, obviously Glastonbury particularly, um, how many years has that been going for, Pete? Do you remember when it started? Oh, that would be back in the 70s. It's been going that long, has it? Yeah. But the thing, yeah. the thing is, what, why they started them predominantly was because of all these bands were touring. It costs a lot mm. of money for them to tour mm. around. Whereas yeah. if they have everyone come to them <laughs> and it's all one stage and yes. they get paid more money. So it's actually a better thing for the bands, really. Profitable. Correct. We look here in Australia at the moment where we have things like Day on the Green. Uh, we had things like the Big Day Out in the early 90s and that ran for a good 15 years and things like Day on the Green now probably superseded that. But you're right, you get this sort of group of bands who play the one venue, you get fans who go along who might like three songs from one band, three from another and two from them and have a co- an overall experience there, whether it's a day or two days. Uh, you're right, it is a way of uh, servicing the fans. And it is a way of artists maybe also making a percentage of the gate relevant relevant to their popularity. And you'll see often these things, you know, the opening act probably has prominence, you know, the middle acts uh, slightly less so, and then the main act at the end has probably the most feature sort of uh, sort of stuff behind it. But um, uh, but yeah, these these well, particular. F- Sorry, I was, was going to say, and also, there's not just one act going on. So at Glastonbury, when I went, there was probably about four different um, venues that you could go to in the actual festival. I, I went and seen the fake Beatles, you know, they were playing and then there'd be um, like the big main event and then there'd be an, a, another ve- event sponsored as well. Yeah. So like so many um, acts to find there. Yeah. It's brilliant. And I think the interesting from, a, so from a, a Wozniak's point of view, Having this goal of that, you know, the 80s, we want this to not be the me generation. Well, it sort of became that. You look at Reaganomics and you look at American culture and the world and Wall Street and greed is good. And and by the end of the 80s, it was a very selfish generation, a very selfish era. Uh, and then so by the early 90s, you had this nihilism and, you know, I want to kill myself and, you know, less is more and, you know, minimalist type sort of response. Yeah. which is what happens. But, um, yeah, I mean, the intentions, I said, for coming out of the 70s, what he thought was, uh, you know, um, uh, a selfish era. Well, the 80s definitely became a little bit more self-absorbed and, and they often say a, a, an era of excess was the 80s. So um, I think Steve tried, but, you know, society went a certain way. And look, as economies grow and markets open up and, you know, without getting political, Reagan opened up a lot of, you know, uh, well, took a lot of de- a lot of regulation away from businesses to be able to operate, perform without the barriers of of, uh, of trade around them. Um, I guess though the uh, the intent was probably different to what the outcomes were. Albeit, you know, 1983 was that start of the decade when those things hadn't really formed. The US Festival is rock music, computer technology, but one thing it is for sure is people, thousands and thousands of people. Did you watch the press conference? No, I was about to ask you. Sorry, you, you've done a bit. You've done a bit of research. You've gone back and watched a bit on audio and YouTube and things. Share with us uh, some of your anecdotes from that. Okay, so Joe Strummer is sitting quite close to um, Dave Lee Roth, 
And you can see there's such a difference, isn't there? You know, one's just like rock and roll and, you know, got the hair and the tight pants and the other one's all about political injustice, yeah. you know? Yes, So yes. there's like, there's this all rich- I can't see those two guys sitting together or going for a beer. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll reference something later on as we go through this, but um, about what happened when um, the clash got on stage and, um, Oh, shall I tell it now? Yeah, tell us. Yeah. So now, Clash found out that they weren't getting paid, even though they were saying top billing for the, the two different days, they weren't getting paid as much as Van Halen. And so they they, they spatted this out on, on stage. And then above them, in lights, um, they actually showed you the paycheck of how much they were actually getting paid. Oh, you already right. knew that? No, I didn't know. This <laughs> no. is news to me. I, I haven't had no. time to go back into that part of things. But yeah. so the check. So the che- who was showing the check? Uh, Van Halen work? Um, Steve Brosniak. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah, as if to yeah, say, yeah. look, mate, you, your fans are going to find out how many thousands you're getting paid. Right. Okay. Well, there was an interesting thing back in the 80s when Van Halen were touring because one of their uh, roadies, I think, got nearly electrocuted uh, at a venue one time. And I think I've sort of shared the story about the blue or brown M&M story that they always were very big on contracts at venues because uh, they used to say, oh, we want all brown M&Ms or blue and M&Ms taken out of our, out our dressing room. So if they ever went in there, it wasn't about being divas. It's just about they go, well, if I see a brown or blue and M&M in our bowl, they know that the the touring uh, booking agent hadn't read their contracts very well and hadn't provided safety. Oh, yeah, so it's a bit of a, just a sort of a one of those red herring things to sort of see if they uh, could identify their attention to detail or yeah, not. Yeah. Us is an experience that you cannot imagine as you walk through the front gate. It's nothing short of spectacular. Its size, its technology, its very setting is overwhelming. Us is a man's personal statement. Steve Wozniak, whose effort last year lost millions of dollars, still managed to show the world a combination of computer technology and music never before seen. I do have in front of me some some rather interesting pictures and uh, the fashions of the time and the bikinis oh. and you know just the, the the cars and the venues and people turning up and things like that. It was a simpler time of uh, of life, wasn't it, B? Not mm-hmm. an iPhone in sight, and everybody was there in the moment. And effectively, I guess, being in that moment, it was all about the music coming to the artist, uh, sorry, to the audience. I do like the fact that some artists these days are going to play concerts. Yeah, you can't take your phone in. Good. You know, just turn off your life for two hours, come in, experience, absorb, enjoy, connect with me, I'll connect with you, um, rather than all about trying to sort of, you know, photographize yeah, everything. Yeah, enjoy the music. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yes. Funny, you just see everyone's waiting and not got those phones yeah. up in the bloody lights. And it's it's, it's yeah. awful now when you see footage of concerts yeah. and all you see is people's cameras. Yeah. I think with the video they put together and stuff like that, obviously there's some, some great footage there. It was the interesting with the clash there, uh, it was probably one of sort of the last times that Mick Jones appeared, you know, with the clash playing with Joel Strummer, uh, sorry, Joe Strummer, um, before they had their, uh, you know, split up and then sort of Mick went on to form Big Audio Time not long after. But, you know, it was just a sense sort of a time and place that, you know, 40 years has gone by. But 
I think as a legacy, you know, things either grow with time in terms of legacy or they wane in time. It'd be great for someone uh, to be able to go back and maybe archive uh, or pull the archives out and store and and do a doco on this. I know there was a film and video put out at the time, but um, with 40 years since then, you know, you look at the context, as I said earlier, the other concerts that followed up at eight to 10 years later. Well, there were some incidents at these concerts. I did see that at the second concert there, there were two deaths at it. Yes. That uh, it's in some of the notes. Now, I don't know how or what and how. People could have had another attacks or whatever, but it was nowhere near the uh, infamy of what happened in the 99 Woodstock event. Yeah, I'm looking, at the, I'm looking at the guy here in a picture with binoculars checking out girls in bikinis, <laughs> so then maybe that's one of them. is a sort of a wrap relating to our band in excess which is what our podcast is about is that if we put context around it this was a, a very big thing for them that they'd, they'd come to america that you know had some sort of touring around uh etc there there's some great sort of footage on 60 minutes around the 1980-283 period where they had got some traction with shabu shabar they were getting airplay the one thing had become a top 40 hit uh the album had come gone top 30 that had some some traction with Don't Change as a, as a, as a song in the top 100 billboard. And they got a chance to play at this particular gig and effectively play nine songs off the Shabushar album. So as we know, and, and Mark Opitz went back and restored this album wonderfully uh, in the last sort of six, 12 months. Uh, they opened up with Soul Mistake, Hello Paul Jolly. They went into Here Comes, uh, Jan's Song, Hello uh, Foxy, uh, Spy of Love, then into Look at You, The One Thing, Old World, New World, Black and White, and then finished with Don't Change. The band themselves, I remember John was very excited about this gig and just the sea of the crowd. I think Michael being slightly uh, poor with his eyesight could only sort of see, you know, 15 yards in front of him. The album, if you don't have it, you can go onto things like iTunes and, you know, various sort of stores and online uh, uh, stores and order it. Uh, I did play for about a good month. And uh, again, I was too young to really uh, know about them playing the festival at that point in time. But Mark's work and going back and restoring and hearing it as you were like, I felt like I was in the front row. I would urge you to play it in your car with sound around you. You hear a young Michael sort of talking to the audience and connecting to the crowd as a young 23-year-old. Um, some of the footage you can sort of see, I guess, on YouTube of Tim playing up to the crowd, which is great. The crowd was really responsive. I think they knew quite a lot of their songs. It wasn't sort of just like a an act coming on and they're waiting for, you know, the clash. They, they had a, a bit of a connection and the crowd were really engaging with the band. And you can't underestimate a gig like that is how you end up playing Wembley in the future. You know, you get out of there and think of, think of the ascent from pubs and clubs and touring around sm- smaller establishments and then getting a chance to play in front of 180,000 people, I think, at the time when they went on. Uh, which would have been fantastic. Yeah, it was lovely actually watching the crowd, like you say, really, really getting into it. And it was a a joyous crowd, you know, just dancing in their own spot. When the clash came on, it's all that swaying and it's a bit ruggish. I mean, it's scary. I mean, the whole whole place is like, you know, moving together. But, um, you know, it was nice watching in excess. I mean, it was really nice. I mean, out of all the bands that were playing that day, 
definitely the coolest band that yeah. were on there. I mean, all the others, you know. I mean, the Stray Cats were good, very good musicians, and it was a very bare stage. But in excess, I and mean, they just shone. I mean, especially when, you know, they were starting to take their clothes off as well because it got a bit hot. Boingo, Boingo came on and they were sweaty from the start. Yeah. yeah. Well, interesting, another act who played on that day on the same day was Men at Work. Now, just mm. a little bit of an aside, Men at Work Australian Act my godmother's uh, sister was uh, engaged to the guy who played the flute in the band. So my mum used to go see Men at Work uh, back in the late 70s, early 80s where they broke. And uh, Men at Work were the second last act on the first day. They'd sold 15 million albums, I think, on their off business as usual, which was the album that had Don't Down Under on it and Who Can It Be Now and Be Good Johnny. And they were huge in America. They won a Grammy, uh, a Grammy I think, in early 83, a month earlier. I was very a couple of months earlier for Best New Act. Um, they were huge, um, uh, and I guess part of that sort of Saturday lineup. But uh, relating it sort of, you know, I guess back to technology, back in those days, they were able to put up the very first massive screen. I think it was the biggest screen of a video to a crowd at that time. Now, remember, this was the era where the video recorder just came out at home. People didn't have a video camera. They Getting a VCR recorder, a VHS or a Beta was sort of cutting edge at the time. Um, having said all of that, you know, this was one of those big screens at the time that allowed people up the back to see, you know, Michael and the rest of the bands play and things like that as well. Fast forward 30 years later, 40 years later, you know, massive screens. You see what Coldplay do at their gigs now, U2 do at their gigs. Um, again, this 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 concept probably was a forerunner and inspired technology through Steve and others to say what is possible at a concert. What can you do? What can you create? And I think that's a legacy impact of this gig as well, along with some of the bands that sort of went there too. I don't have much more else to add, but I know we've got a ch- we've had a sort of a bit of a chunky episode today. But uh, what we could encourage is a couple of things: is go onto YouTube or follow some of the links that B might post about where you can sort of check it out. Um, go order the album from uh, you know from your iTunes or from wherever your you know your providers or suppliers are. Do yourself a favour and listen to In Excess in its entirety, and go check some of the other bands out. I mean, if you are into people like Bowie and the Pretenders and U2 and other ones, you know, it's a point in time. You see these artists at a very young age who were doing what they were doing, and as I said, it was a real creme de la creme uh, of performers there, and uh, some were at that really career height. Like probably sort of Bowie and and the you know probably at that time uh, Men at Work and probably Stray Cats were at that particular time in Van Halen. Uh, some of the other bands like In Excess were at the start of their journey, and the start of their climb, like them and the Divinals and even U2 at that point. Um, and again, another crossover with Excess and U2 were in the same place at the same time, doing something together, you know, um, and and you know rivals you could say, you know, trying to you know capture the same market space, but. You know, their careers are very, very simultaneously aligned. And this is just another example where they were, yeah, set together doing the same same thing at the same time in front of the, the same audiences, you know. But um, is there anything else, B, you want to have in closing today? No, I think you've said it all. All right. Uh, US Festival, 40 years and 41 year anniversary in the can. everyone, Blair here from Don't Change Ultimate in Excess. You are listening to In Excess Access All Areas. And now it's time for Pleasure and Pain.
Well, welcome back to Pleasure and Pain. This has taken forever to come back, Hayden. Has it taken you this long to compile your list? I reckon we haven't done this for 60 episodes. And I know some people out there uh, will find this a bit self-indulgent, yep. but uh, we don't so care. do we. Uh, <laughs> so do we. But uh, equally, we know a lot of people out there did like our little sort of uh, trip back in nostalgia where we take a moment away from in excess and we go back to a year in our lives where music was quite prominent in our youth and we pick out songs from a certain year that uh, meant something to us. And we probably veer towards the more pleasurable, but I can say, Pete, we do have one painful one in my list today. Can I uh, put these on as a little montage now and then we'll come back and dive deep on them for a moment? No problem. Let me uh, press play.
are you, Bobby? Hi, Ken. You want to go for a ride? Sure, Ken. Jump in. Oh my goodness. Where do you start with this? Start with number one, Hayden. What was that? Okay, first one there was Ashes to Ashes by Faith No More. A song that was really the you know, the lead single off their last album was a top 10 hit in Australia. Song that's fantastic, great riff, great vocal. Probably commercially, as I said, the band would probably did best on this album in Australia. Yeah, great singer Mike Patton and a song that I still love to this day, Ashes to Ashes. And it's not the David Bowie Ashes to Ashes. This is different. I know. When you first said it, I thought, ooh. That's yeah. It. Number two, B, uh, this is a, a song that has resonance with us because uh, we've put this on for Meteors, Bittersweet Symphony by The Verb. It's a classic, isn't it? It's yeah. Fantastic. And this is a song that, uh, fortunately enough, in the last two years, Richard Af- Ashcroft, the singer of The Verb, has uh, won the rights uh, from Jagger and Richards. They gave him back the rights to this song. Uh, so he now can finally make money on it, which is great. Uh, love the film clip with Richard walking down the street, bumping into people, and uh, you know I feel like that sometimes. You know you just want to bump someone, and they want to bump you, and you're angry, and you know. But we can't do it because it's our alter ego thinking. But uh, love the clip and uh, uh, a classic song. Also appeared in the end of uh, Cruel Intentions. B, remember that movie, Cruel uh, Intentions? Yeah, with a young Reese Witherspoon. It's a classic album. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I do stress to everybody: listen to the whole album. Yeah, brilliant. Absolutely. And with only a month or two with uh, this release uh, of The Bittersweet Symphony, uh, a radio hit came out with uh, Karma Police, uh, which I thought was the best song of OK Computer. It does lift a little bit off uh, Sexy Sadie from the Beatles off the White Album. So if you do compare the two songs, the riff does uh, has been borrowed and Radiohead have done that a few times in their life, but uh, still a great song. Next one, B, uh, a very much uh, a melancholy one for all of us in Excess fans, but it's Into My Arms by Nick Cave, and Nick Cave played that at Michael's funeral. So um, I guess 1997 has resonance uh, in lots of ways, given the date and things. Uh, the next one there was One Headlight by a uh, Bob Dylan Jr., uh, that is Jacob Dylan, who had a band called The Wallflowers. Love this song, love the melody, love the the lyric. You know, just interesting, driving home with one headlight. I mean, it's just, just a... It's an interesting lyric, and I I love the, the the tune. It still sounds great to this day. Two songs next, B, you probably know these ones. Uh, similarly titled, different bands. Around the World by Daft Punk, with the great film clip where they're sort of uh, doing all these syncopated dance beats and things like that and skeleton suits and things, which is a fantastic clip. And then All Around the World by Oasis, which uh, was uh, part of their sort of uh, poked-out album where they uh, like to do eight-minute solo guitars and things, but... All Around the World was one of the sort of bigger hits off that album, which I love. Next one, One Hit Wonders B. Uh, I think you'll probably listen to this one a bit more and remember it. It's called Your Woman by a band called White Town. And it's a really interesting sort of vocal and uh, it has this really sort of 19, sort of 30s sort of intro to it. But a great song at the time. And again, this band came and went and, you know, this was their claim to fame at the time. Next one here, Say What You Want by Texas. Remember Texas? I love her. Darlene Spiteri. Oh she uh, had a huge hits, huge hits in Australia in the late 80s, so we thought I don't uh, need a lover. Uh, and then I just need a friend. But then they came back in 97 after about eight years and had this great song and they'd really updated their sound and they had another little sort of foray, particularly in England and things. So great song in 97. The next one is uh, Brick uh, by Ben Folds Five, uh, a really melancholy song. Uh, I won't go into the subject matter. It is a little bit contentious, but... 
Um, it is uh, a melody and a lyric. If you do uh, research, has a real resonance there. And Ben Fold actually is an American singer-songwriter. Lives in Adelaide in Australia. And this was a, quite a big hit here. Next one there was Everything to Everyone by Everclear. Uh, I think we played Everclear last time on My Pleasure and Pain, which was the Santa Monica I think song. You did. Yes. yes. And my last pleasurable one was Open Up Your Eyes by a band called Tonic. Most people know their other hit, you know, If I Can Only See You In Your Blah Blah. Anyway, I'll leave it at that. In your what? But, uh, I can't remember the lyric. Uh, but Open Up Your Eyes by Tonic was their second hit and pretty big in Australia, and I love that one. And my shocker be, uh, as we did oh, play God. at the end there, <laughs> saved it to last. My painful one was Barbie Girl <laughs> by, uh, what were they called? Aqua. Aqua. Is that what they call it? Aqua? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, sorry, yeah. everybody, for uh, reminding you of that song, but there are some people out there who love it. But that was my painful one to end. So thank you yes. for allowing me to indulge, B. <laughs> I think I've, I've relayed this story to you before that it's very, very <laughs> painful to me because me and yes. James went on holiday to Corfu and got very, very drunk and ended up on stage. Yeah. James was dressed up as um, someone out of the Beatles. The crowd were like about to throw me in the water if I didn't sing Barbie Girl. And did James sing the male parts? Or we go, that's no Barbie. <laughs> <laughs> probably, <Did> probably. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Sorry, listeners. We will, we will oh, stick with you. Yes. All right, people, that, that's a pleasure and pain. And I look forward to your little list over the next week or two because uh, you would have been in England there and hitting the club circuit and uh, you had some pretty cool songs. I, I really like your your pleasure and uh, song, especially there's some there that I haven't heard before. I saw a song the other day that I was talking about, Malcolm McLaren's Duck, uh, something to do with the duck. Yeah. And I remember you put that one on one of our things. Um, yeah. Because we know Buffalo Girls on the Outside by him. That was one of the hits for yeah. him. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, uh, yeah he, no, he I like quite, I, yeah. I like going back and, and um, revisiting, actually. Go, oh, I forgot yeah. that song. Yes. Played them to death, don't you? And then Sometimes like, have you ever found a song you haven't played for 10 years, so you go, man, I'm going to rediscover that, and it really has another life for you again, yeah? Mm. It's like um, when we were talking about Flock of Seagulls earlier, I had their first album and I thought it was brilliant and I played and played it to death and I played it the other day and I knew every single word still of the whole album. You know, there's a song in the last six months I've been playing for it because it's not the most common one, which is I Ran. That was a big hit. Mm. But there's that song that was in a movie in the early 90s that got re-released and there's this new film clip with it. It's called Space Age Love Song. They played that at the Arts Festival, right, yeah. and the lead song there, but it's a ripper, and there's a young Jennifer Connolly and a Frank Whaley Jr., and they, they're skating around a shopping centre. It's an early 90s movie, and they've taken this Flock of Seagulls song from 1982, and they've they put it into the movie, and it's fantastic. The clip's yeah. great. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, yeah, music, music is, music's great, isn't it? Music's great. Yeah, it really is. I do laugh when I think of the uh, movie uh, LA, um, La La Land, sorry, where you see uh, yeah, Ryan Gosling oh. playing keyboards to Iran, you know, at the party. <laughs> yes. You know, yes. for like yes. a seagull. It's <laughs> a great movie, that movie. Yeah. 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 Brilliant. All right. Well, thanks Thank for your list. And, uh, yes, we'll be back with mine um, in the next episode. Hi. This is Sarah from Sydney. You're listening to In Excess, Access All Areas. And now it's time for the news. All right, B, only very quick news this week. We've had a lot to get through, so just a little little small one. No gig watch this week. We've uh, mentioned tons of gigs in the last week or two, hence uh, people will be listening and going to gigs, B. Big shout out to our friends in Portugal. We debuted at number two in the charts in Portugal this week, B. Uh, in the uh, music history, plus number three in the general Portugal chart. So 
big shout out to uh, Pedro. He must have been handing out flies or something there. Thank you, Pedro. Also, to I said earlier, uh, the Music Network has a great article got released about in excess of omission from the Rock Hall of Fame, and a great article from Giles Martin I alluded to earlier. But um, did you know that uh, when uh, Giles was only 23 or 24, he was working in PR at a lot of the American college radios, and in excess uh, had met him there, were really kind to him, and then he got invited along to one of the big gigs in Japan, which is that concert we talked about in the past. And he really, from an early age, was really, you know, loved in excess and, you know, Michael's charisma and things. And then uh, I think Andrew asked him to uh, produce their and remaster their greatest hits in 94. Uh, and since has now gone on to be an executive director of a lot of their activities. So, Yeah, I didn't realise he went that far back. That's, yeah, that's yeah, it did I, yeah. But he hmm. highlights the omission of the Rock Hall of Fame and lobbies away that they should get it in. And it's mentioned about the petition in the article as well. So thank you, Giles, son of George, one of the great producers of all time. Uh, the last thing I want to mention here, B, I'm going to mention some songs to you here. Uh, you've lost that loving feeling? Yes. Okay. we got to get out of this place. Oh, uh, yeah? Yeah. Here you come again. Do, 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 do. <laughs> yeah, bit of Dolly. He's so shy. Pointer Sisters? Yes. He's so shy. Uh, somewhere out there. Uh, one of the uh, Disney movies, I think. Yeah, these are yeah. some songwriters. On, uh, on Broadway, which is a hit for the Drifters. Well, uh, Barry Mann and Cynthia uh, Well, uh, Wheel, uh, released and uh, sorry, uh, wrote these songs back in the sixties and seventies and the eighties. Cynthia passed away this week at eighty-two. Uh, she was a co-writer of a lot of these amazing hits, and uh, what a contribution to music. And we like to yeah. acknowledge people in the industry who have made a significant. Output and these songs live on forever and uh, valet to Cynthia. Hey, this is Paul Jolly from Sydney and this is The Big Rat. All right, B, well, that's a wrap. Yeah, I enjoyed your pleasure and pain and hearing you talk about the uh, the festival there. Awesome. I can't wait for your pleasure and pain because I like your ones, as I said earlier, and the fact you've got these little indie artists that I might have missed in my youth. So look forward to yours in a week or two when we re-record the next episode. Yeah, just a reminder, everybody, we'll be taking next week off. So um, go back, go listen to all the episodes and also go fund for Alice. Thank you. <laughs> Flash, please look into the descriptions because you can now get the link to go and buy the LP on vinyl and CD for Ollie. So that's room for the memories on CD and vinyl. Link in the description. And we're going to go out today, B. We thought, what better thing to go out with than Don't Change Live at the Us Festival? Greatest song, Epitaph, at every concert. So we thought we'd go out with that today. It's a goodbye from me. And it's a goodbye from B. Goodbye, everybody.
this is the Dutchie, and you've been listening to In Excess, Access All Areas with Hayden and Bee.